All right, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me this evening to Psalm 7 as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together. We pick up here in Psalm 7 this evening and we'll try and cover a few more of the Psalms together. Uh, Psalm 7, you notice, has a little... uh, postscript or prescript, I should say, at the beginning of the psalm by telling us that it was a meditation of David, of King David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, we don't know from scriptural analysis anyway exactly what the issue was between David and Cush, the Benjamite. Uh, One thing that we do know, of course, is that David did have some challenges in his life in regards to those who came from the tribe of Benjamin, which were therefore Benjamites. If you remember King Saul, uh, who was reigning for a time before God rejected him because of his rebellion against the Lord, and then, of course, ultimately chose David, young David as a shepherd boy, who ultimately became uh, really that shepherd king, the type of king that God was looking for. And, of course, when that transpired and Saul and his jealousy of young David and recognizing God's rejection of his life, and realizing that God's hand was now upon David, that he was the chosen king of Israel. If you remember, for a period of time, uh, Saul caused a great deal of difficulty in David's life and caused him to kind of live almost this Robin Hood existence we see throughout the Old Testament where David was struggling and on the run and Saul was hunting him down with his men and his different uh, soldiers trying to destroy David's life. And there were those, certainly, who were supporters of Saul. You know, nothing new under the sun, differences in people's political perspectives, who should be on the throne, uh, who should reign, should it be David, should it be Saul, we think Saul, we think David. And uh, I guess the same things, nothing new under the sun. And perhaps Cush, the Benjamite, again, being from the tribe of Benjamin, was someone who was a supporter of King Saul and therefore, it seems, was doing things to try and harm David, to speak in a slanderous way about David's life. It seems that's what David is addressing as he pens this psalm here, which ultimately, remember, was put to music. We're told, in fact, here it was a song that he sang to the Lord. And basically, it's a psalm, you'll see as we read it, in regards to a time when David was being persecuted, when he was being slandered, when things were being said against him that were destructive and harmful to his character and to his reputation. And rather than David light up his own you know, social media page and burst out a bunch of things in Old Testament Twitter or whatever else it would have been in that day to slander somebody back, what David does is he talks to the Lord about it. And he takes the hurtful things and the things that were said about him And he talks to the Lord rather than talking to others or broadcasting his own venom and his anger and angst towards other people around him. So notice David begins this prayer to speak to God in the midst of his hurt in a time when he had been slandered greatly and was being, it seems, persecuted and attacked in his life. And, you know, perhaps in some way you can relate to that, whether it's something that's happened in your past where hurtful things were said about you, slanderous things things that were untrue, things that people said in a venomous way to try and just tarnish your reputation or say hurtful things to ruin your character to a greater and greater degree, or whether you're going through that right now, or if you haven't yet, something I can promise you, before you die, you will, because it's a part of the process. And from time to time, it happens on occasion. You know, From what I read in the Word of God, there was only one perfect individual who ever lived on this earth, the perfect man, the sinless man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know what they did about him. They misjudged him. They falsely accused him. And then ultimately they beat him. They whipped him. They stripped him naked and they pinned him to a cross. And that's what happens to perfect people. And if that's what happens to perfect people, how much more should we expect on occasion that hurtful, slanderous, cruel things from time to time will be done to us? as imperfect people and as human beings as well. And so David, man after God's own heart, but yet notice that did not stop those who were David's enemies and detractors from saying hurtful things about him. So David begins this prayer looking to the Lord with that backdrop saying, Oh Lord, my God. Again, that word Lord there is that Hebrew tetragrammaton. It's the YHVH, the 
the consonants, no vowels in the Hebrew. It was the name, the covenant name of God to the Jewish people of Israel uh, that they, uh, you know, many times out of reverence won't even pronounce or, or say the name out of such holiness and reverence to that. And again, not knowing, you know, some think that it may be Yahweh, some think it may be Jehovah. We can't be certain. There's really no perfect pronunciation. We just have what we have from the Hebrew. The term God there is the term Elohim that comes all the way from the book of Genesis, which is that term used in the Old Testament all the way from the very beginning regarding God in the beginning God. It's Elohim in the Hebrew. And literally, it's that compound unity, the idea that God is one, but yet it's a term that speaks of a compound unity, giving the indication that though God is one, that God is, is a compound unity. And of course, ultimately, we recognize there must be something to this reality all the way from the book of Genesis when God begins to say in a plural sense, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Now, people aren't made in the image of angels. People are made in the image of God. So something was transpiring in the heavenly realm, even in God was creating humanity, speaking about his creation, where God, I believe, was communicating among what we know as the Trinity. As God was speaking amongst the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And that's that same term there as we see this term, O Lord, O Jehovah, Yahweh, the name of God, my God. He says, in you, I put my trust. Now, I have that underlined because that's a really great statement that shows you why David could maintain stability in his life as a man of God. And David went through his fair share of difficulties. If it was not only his own mistakes later on, David went through a fair share of difficulties just because of the things he endured of hurtful things that people did to him in his life. David went through some real challenging seasons, circumstantial hardships like we all do as well. But notice the reason David was able to say stable was because David's trust was not in himself and his trust was not in his government. His trust was not in uh, you know, the religious system of the day in Israel. David's trust was in the Lord. And David said, Lord God, in you, I put my trust. You know, what a great example and a great reminder for all of us this evening. Truly, truly, where is your trust? Where's your trust? And who's going to be the next sitting president of the United States? Is that where your trust is? I hope not. Is your trust in all the health officials and which one's right? Is it Fauci or this one or that? Where's your trust? Where's your confidence, your safety, your security? Is it in these health protocols or not these health protocols? Where's your trust? The Bible says that our trust should ultimately be in the Lord. For our next breath, for our health, for our financial security, for our stability, our trust needs to be in the Lord, in God. Not in ourselves, not in our own ability. Look, we should be good stewards. I'm not saying that we can't benefit from other things and other people, but ultimately our confidence is safest when we, like David, say, oh, Lord, my God, no matter what's being done to me, no matter how difficult things are right now, circumstantially, oh, Lord, my God, in you, I put my trust. My trust is in you, Lord. He says, verse one, save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me lest they tear me, he says, like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. So you can tell David was going through some pretty painful experiences, whatever Cush the Benjamite was doing to him personally or maybe instigating others to do to David as well. He says, Lord, I'm asking because my trust is you. Spare me, save me, deliver me, he says, from those who are persecuting me. And the word persecute literally just speaks of, uh, of doing that which is hurtful or saying that which is hurtful or damaging to another person. So persecution can be in a verbal sense. Doing that, which is, you know, you know, speaking things which are hurtful and destructive to somebody, that's persecution verbally. Or persecution can even be physical, bringing consequences or some degree of treatment to someone that's hurtful. Now, we don't know exactly if one or both were happening to David, but it was greatly painful to him. He's saying, Lord, deliver me from this, save me. And he says, lest, because if you don't, Lord, he says, they're going to tear me like a lion. Now, David uses that analogy. Remember, David, David was a shepherd. 
And David, from time to time, we even know in the word of God, had, had to fend off lions and, and to do what he could to protect the flock when he was out in the field. So David knew how ferocious a lion was, right? And we understand that concept that when he says like a lion, he's speaking of a ferocious, vicious animal that literally rends its prey in pieces, that just attacks it and tears it apart. And David says, this is what it's like. This is what they're going to do to me. If God, you don't deliver me and protect me, that's ultimately what's going to happen to me. You know, I look at this and as David refers to his enemies like a lion, what ultimately does the New Testament tell us when Peter writes uh, in his letter, First Peter chapter five, Peter refers to a greater enemy, a spiritual enemy that we have. And he uses that exact same metaphor. He says, be sober, that is pay attention, be vigilant, be on the watch because he says your adversary, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we have an enemy as well, if not humanly, spiritually, the devil, the adversary to all of our souls, who wants to, like this lion, like these people that were attacking David, who wants to tear us and rend our lives in pieces and just ruin our lives. And our only safety really is to do what David does here, to cry out to the Lord, Lord, protect me, deliver me. Don't let my enemy succeed against me because, Lord, if, if the devil has his way in my life, he'll rip me to pieces. I'm no match for him. And so, Lord, like one of your sheep, I'm asking, protect me, spare me. And the devil has many ways that he tries to bring that damage and attack into our lives. Sometimes it's through the mouths of people or hurtful things that people do to us. But the Lord is who we have to look to for safety. Now, look what David does in verse three, which is very interesting. This shows you his humility. Here he is, he's being slandered, he's being persecuted. And it clearly seems from the text that David is innocent in the situation and he's being wrongfully persecuted. He's being wrongfully slandered in an unjustifiable basis. And yet, look what David says, verse three, he says, oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, in other words, Lord, if I have done what they've said about me, they're accusing me of things, so, Lord, if I have done this, if there is iniquity or sin in my hands, if I'm guilty of something that I've done, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Now, perhaps here we get a little indication of maybe even what was happening and some of what the accusations were against David. Because you know as well as I do, those who were probably supporters of King Saul looked at David and were no doubt very quick to want to accuse him. David, what you're trying to do is just wiggle your way onto the throne and you're using you know, corrupt means to try and get yourself to the throne and push Saul off the throne. And perhaps they were accusing David of doing the very things that he's describing here, that he had repaid evil to Saul. Here, Saul had brought you in, David. He let you be one of his musicians. He let you work in the palace. And you go and repay him evil by saying, you're the next king of Israel and God's anointed you. And here, this man's done such good things for you. And now you're trying to plunder him without a cause. And, and so maybe these were some of the accusations the false statements that were being made against uh, David as they were questioning him and his integrity. But David, in tremendous humility here, as he prays this through with the Lord, he says, Lord, search me. And he says, Lord, if I've done what they've said. In other words, Lord, I, if I'm truly guilty of what they're saying, then I'll take the consequence. And I like this about the heart of David here, because rather than kind of just have this arrogant attitude, look, I didn't do what you said, and I'm not. David instead says, you know what, Lord, I, I'm open here. Lord, if some of what they've said in accusing me is true, then, then Lord, let me bear consequence for it. I'm willing to embrace consequence for what I've done wrong or what I've said wrong. And there's kind of this openness to the fact that he could indeed be guilty. And I'll tell you something, that's a difficult thing for people to do because I find in my own life, I see in the lives of others, it's really difficult for us sometimes to want to genuinely embrace the consequences for our own wrongdoing at times. We want to blame shift. You know, why is this happening? I mean, I know I made a bunch of horrible decisions, but why would God let this happen to me? Right? And we always want to blame shift rather than being open to the fact that if I truly deserve a consequence, 
then Lord, I don't want to be released from the consequence. If I've done something wrong, then, then, then I'm willing to observe my blow for that because that's something that I'm deserving of. And it's something maybe that I need to learn a lesson from. And, and David here, though he was, it seems, innocent, I love the humility of his heart. He says, Lord, in case I'm missing something, if I've done this, then if I'm guilty of sin and I've done these things, then he says, I'm willing to absorb the consequence for that in my life. But of course, it seems that that wasn't the case as David was praying this through because you notice afterwards, he then there's that term selah. The idea is ponder, think about this. And there's a pause. And then David begins to pray in a little more boldness in verse six. He says, arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment that you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity. So in verse six, you see David sort of pleading with the Lord to come to his aid, to come to his defense. He says, Lord, arise. The idea is like awakening someone from sleep. He's saying, Lord, I need you to, to, to come to my aid in this situation. Rise up, Lord. He's saying, intervene in this situation. And I love how David prays in verse six, arise, O Lord, in your anger. In other words, David understood that one of the attributes of God from time to time is that God is a God of passions and that God does have anger on occasion. A lot of times we feel like anger is this sinful and wrong thing in and of itself. Well, look, the Bible says that we're created in the image of God, and the Bible doesn't teach that God doesn't get angry. The Bible just teaches that God is slow to anger. Because God is good and righteous, there are times when anger is an appropriate passion and emotion and response, and even our perfect creator, our holy God, experiences anger from time to time. And we're going to see that even in these Psalms this evening that we're looking at. And so David here says, Lord, arise in your anger, lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemy. So what does David recognize? That the reason why God would be feeling anger in this situation is because of the fact that there was mistreatment of people that were taking place. And David realizing that being innocent in this particular situation, not that he was a flawless man, or that he was you know, someone who had no error or sin in his life. That's why David was praying what he was in the prior verses. David had his fair share of mistakes. But in this situation, he was innocent. He was being falsely accused. He was being wrongfully judged and hurt and persecuted and mistreated. And David understood, you know what, Lord? I know one thing that makes you mad. I know something that makes you angry. And that is when a human being does something hurtful and cruel in mistreating another human being. You know, I think we should remember that God is a just God and God loves people. And if there is one thing, if not numerous things that do make God angry, it is certainly that God is angered when people do hurtful, cruel, and destructive things to other people. Because God loves humanity and God loves people. And just like a father, if he saw someone harming their child, that father's not going to be dispassionate about that. You know, I had three daughters. If someone harmed one of my daughters, anger would be my response. It would be my appropriate response out of love for them. And God is a good and loving father. So he says, arise, Lord. I know this must anger you to see me being mistreated like this. And I don't know about you, but I find almost a, a helpfulness in that. Lord, I don't have to be angry and respond in anger myself to retaliate. Lord, you're angry when people do wrong things to me. So Lord, I'm asking you to respond, you to intervene. And he says, verse eight, the Lord shall judge the peoples. And he says, judge me, O Lord, Notice, according to my righteousness. Now, he's not saying he has a righteous standing before God. The idea is, Lord, according to my being right in this particular situation. David knew that he certainly lacked his own personal righteousness and needed the righteousness of God, even as we all do as sinful people. We're not righteous before a holy God. We need his righteousness. But he's saying, Lord, according to my integrity and my righteousness in this circumstance, I'm asking that you would intervene. Judge me fairly, Lord, and judge and deal with those who are unfairly doing such things to me. He says, verse nine, continuing in his prayer, oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. Boy, wouldn't that be great? 
Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. You know, there is one thing that is true about those who do wicked things. There's no future in that. It ultimately fails. Sin never succeeds. Wickedness, whether it's done personally, whether it's done on a a larger level, wickedness always has its own built-in self-destructive pathway. And so David says, Lord, just sooner rather than later, please, Lord, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, Lord. Just bring an end to it. But establish the just. Make stable those who are just in doing what's right. For he says, verse 9, for the righteous God tests the hearts and the minds. Again, notice God who is fully righteous, fully just. It says that God tests, that is, he knows, he evaluates and examines the hearts and the minds of people. You know, so important for us to realize that that is ultimately what matters most to God because that is what is sincerely true about every one of us. God sees the true condition of our hearts. God knows exactly the thoughts and what is going on in our minds. We may be able to do a great job saying certain things or behaving certain ways, but that's not always necessarily sincerely what's true of us. Because see, I can greatly think horrible things about you and severely not like you and still say nice things to you. I've done it a few times in my life. Not to you personally, but just using myself as an example. I can be extremely unhappy about what I'm doing, but still do something and go through the motions of doing something, right? I mean, we can do things in our emotions, in our words, but God tests what's going on in the heart. God sees what's going on in the minds, and that's how God evaluates. God pays attention. What's the reason behind why we do what we do or don't do? And God tests and knows the true condition of our heart. So important to recognize, you know, we're never fooling God. God knows if we're genuinely sincere in our heart or insincere in our heart, we can go through motions even religiously. There are lots of people who come and go and you know, sit through worship gatherings and religious meetings. And the reality is, is it's just like going to work. They're just punching their time card. And they may be going through the motions. They may be practicing the routines, singing the songs. But God sees and tests the condition of the heart. God knows what's really going on in the inside. And that's something that David actually appreciate he says lord you know what's sincere you know what's true of every human being inwardly you test the hearts and the minds and therefore he says verse 10 my defense is of god who saves the upright in heart god is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day so he says my defense it's not self-defense my defense is of god david understood and that's a very you know, important statement because David was a man's man. If you remember, David becomes an incredible warrior in the nation of Israel. If there was someone who could probably defend himself pretty well, I'd say David would rank pretty high on that. And yet David says, I don't defend myself. He says, I realize my defense is of God. And you know, sometimes one of the best things we can do to exercise faith, and it truly is a faith thing, is to learn how to just let God come to our defense. Because the natural human tendency, whether it's in a verbal you know, battle, or is we, we want to defend ourselves, we want to prove we're right. And, and, and the best thing to do is, is just say, God, you're my defense. God, you defend me in that situation, defend my reputation or defend my cause, fight my battles. And, and God is more than willing to do that. And he's, here's the good thing, verse 11, David says, he's a just judge. In other words, he doesn't misjudge things like we do. God is a just judge, and he's fair, and he shows no partiality. He won't even show partiality to me in this situation, because if I come to my own defense, I may not be the most just judge, and I may go overboard in the way that I respond or the way that I relate to a person, but God is a just judge. So God, I don't even trust my own judgment. You're a just judge. Come to my defense. And David says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And again, Maybe hard for people to hear that, but the reality is, is sin angers God. It goes against his righteousness, and it is a part of God's nature in being just and holy to be angry in regards to wicked behavior and sin. It displeases a holy God. 
If he does not turn back, the Bible says, he will sharpen his sword. And the sword speaks of a, a you know, instrument of, of judgment. The sword would put to death in battle. He bends his bow and makes it ready and prepares for himself instruments of death and makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So the picture there is picturing God like not only a judge, but as a warrior and executing justice when necessary in an appropriate battle. And again, interesting that it says that if mankind does not turn back, the idea is repentance, turn away from their sin, then God will sharpen his sword as his instrument of judgment. Now, how interesting, sharpen his sword as his instrument of judgment. What does the word of God tell us is a metaphor for the very book, the scripture, the sword of the spirit. And see, this is how God will execute his judgment against humanity ultimately for their wickedness and their sin and their rebellion against him because God will say, I gave a clear revelation of my standards, of my word, what was true. You had it the entire time that you were upon the earth. And if you rejected it, then this will be the very standard whereby you, in a sense, become guilty for your own choices to reject the truth of my word. And the word of God, in a sense, will be the sword that slays us in our guilt and brings upon us the truth of the punishment that God's word tells us is intended for those who reject the Lord and who reject God's provision of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, that has been sent to us, that will stand accountable for those realities because we rejected the revelation of God's word. Verse 14, he says, behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. Look, the picturesque language there, like giving birth. He conceives, he brings forth. That's the idea, you know, conceiving sin and whenever you conceive sin it always gives birth to more sin you know sin beckons more sin and it always becomes a progressive thing like a snowball effect you conceive it and it just gives birth to more sin to more trouble and to more falsehood and lying to try and cover sin when we're doing what's wrong he says verse 15 he made a pit and dug it out and he has fallen into the ditch which he has made his trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his crown. So David here basically says, look, what I have learned is that those who try and set traps for others, those who try and set up situations to harm others, that ultimately they end up ensnaring their own lives. Sort of a, a poetic justice thing. And, and God just has a way of allowing that to happen. He says, the very pit which they have dug for me, they will fall into that ditch themselves and his own trouble will return upon his own head. Again, if you become someone who gives in to slandering other people and gossiping, then you will find in time that the word of God says that what we sow, we also reap, that ultimately you will next find yourself a victim of slander and gossip, and someone will, in a sense, ultimately return that back, and it will come back upon you in your own life. And again, so it's important to take these things into consideration. We see examples of this even in the Word of God. Think of the book of Esther, that when we went through that together, remember Mordecai, who was this godly man, this relative of Queen Esther, and remember Haman, who hated Mordecai the Jew and wanted to get rid of him and ultimately wanted to exterminate in this devilish, diabolical way, was wanting to be used as a vessel, I believe, of the devil to destroy the entire Jewish race, which ultimately would more than just ruin a race of people, would wreck the reality of the prophecies of God to bring forth salvation and the Messiah from Israel, to bring salvation for all of humanity. And when Mordecai was living out his life and Haman was hating him and hating him and hating him. Also remember Haman built those gallows, remember? And he was gonna try and trick the king to get Mordecai the Jew hung on those gallows and what happened? God brought a turn of events and ultimately what happened? Haman ended up being hung on the very gallows that he was intending to put to death Mordecai on. And God brought this turn of events. Why? Because God rules over all and God works on behalf of his people. And to do such things to try and harm others never ends up working out ultimately. He says his trouble is just going to return back upon his own head. And David kind of took, I believe, a sense of confidence in that reality that what was happening to him, God would settle it all out in time. 
may take a little while, but God will settle. And let me say to you this evening, as things happen, trust the Lord, because ultimately God will settle things out in time. He may settle out a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. But if not, ultimately, I tell you this, he will settle it out in eternity when each person stands before God and gives account for what they did and what they did not do. So David here just kind of rests in that reality. And that's why verse 17, in the midst of what he was going through, he says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. David, that is strange. How are you hurting being slandered, no doubt you got to be wounded and angry and people are mistreating you and life is not pleasant right now circumstantially and yet you want to have a worship service? David, you're saying, I'm going to praise the Lord according to his righteousness. Again, he's thinking about the righteousness of God and I'm going to sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. What's David doing? He's very wisely shifting his focus, I believe, to help himself process the very hurt that he found himself dealing with and to me this is a phenomenal reminder for all of us because think about when people do hurtful things to us or something's going on in our life where somebody's wounded us or hurt us whether way in our past or in our present situation what do we do we use terms like we nurse a grudge right and we just become bitter and we focus on it. We just you know, get angry and upset and we just continue to think about it. And then it goes from an hour to five hours to a day to five days to five weeks to five months to five years to 50 years of just nursing. And, and it just consumes people's focus. You know what's one of the best things to do? Just worship your way out of it. Just shift your focus. Shift your focus from the wrong that was done to you to how right and awesome and righteous God is. And to be able to rejoice and sing to the Lord, Lord, thank you so much that you're not like people. <laughs> Lord, thank you so much that you're righteous and you're good and you're worthy. And, you know, something wonderful happens when we're able to kind of just shift our focus and praise the Lord and sing to him. And our focus goes off of what was done to us and onto who God really is unto us. And you know what a fitting thing in connection to that as we look at Psalm 8 here, because Psalm 8 is really just a psalm of worship. As David worships the Lord, you'll notice he, he doesn't really ask anything. He just worships God and how fitting that it comes right after Psalm 7, even consecutively. It says to the chief musician, one on the instrument of Gath, another psalm of David. And David begins this psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and yet you've crowned him with glory and with honor. So as David begins this psalm, notice his first thought is not towards man or humanity. His first thought is upon what? God. God. And, 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 you know, blessed is the person who has much of their thoughts focused upon God. That your primary thinking is about God. That it's upon God. There's something very helpful. I would even go so far to say is something very therapeutic about that. You know, what does the Bible tell us in the, the New Testament as well? The scripture even tells us to think upon those things which are pure and holy and righteous and true and trustworthy. You know, if more of God's people, I'll tell you this, even in 2020, would have been spending more time thinking upon God and God's word rather than the government and what the government's saying and the coronavirus. And if we'd spend more time thinking about those things, we probably would have had a lot less anxiety and depression and angst and frustration and disagreement and anger and I don't agree with that and your view is wrong and my view is right and if we would have just put our focus 
upon the Lord a little bit more and spent more time consciously thinking about the Lord. And the thing about David, I'll tell you, which made this man ultimately a man after God's own heart is because David had time in solitude where he just thought about God. Because what was David? He was a shepherd, right? So he spent a lot of time out in the fields alone in, in a place of solitude where he could just think about God and how God was like a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leadeth me beside still waters. And, and, and David received these things about the Lord because he just spent time in solitude thinking about God, not even listening to other people or watching Fox News or CNN or whatever existed in that day. He thought about God a lot. And think of the wonderful things we have, even in the Psalms that we're going through right now, because the Spirit of the Lord gave these things to David because he was a thinker and his primary thoughts were about the Lord. David, again, here says, Lord, our Lord. And you notice the two different words, capital L-O-R-D. Again, that's that Hebrew tetragrammaton. It's the Y-H-V-H. So he's saying Jehovah or Yahweh, the covenant name of God that was introduced to Israel. He says, Yehovah, our Lord, different word, Adon or Adonai, where we ultimately get, which is a term that means master or ruler. So he says, you're not only Lord, the covenant keeping God. He says, you're our Lord. It was personalized. You're our ruler, our master. David wanted the Lord to be Adonai, his ruler, his master over his life as a man. And he says, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Again, remember the name of a person, particularly we know in ancient times, and, and we see this a lot among the Old and the New Testament, the name of a person was more than just a label to identify who somebody was. The name represented who they were. That's why the names of God are so valuable and precious all throughout the Old Testament as all these different names are given to God. You know, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Shalom, you know, Jehovah Jireh, these, all these wonderful names of God because they represent things about God's nature and God's character. And so as David talks about the name of God, he's talking about the character of God, the person of God, who God is in his person. And he says, what word could he come up with? Excellent. Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth? Again, the excellency, the idea is, Lord, there, there's no one as superior, as awesome, as excellent as you are in all the earth. And David's just, you know, in wonder and he's in awe about who God is. He just thinks God is fantastic and he's expressing that with, with passion. Lord, how excellent, he says, is your name, who you are in all the earth, he says, you have set your glory, your fame, your majesty above the heavens, not just in the heavens. That'd be awesome enough, but he says above the heavens, or that's how great your glory is. And though God is this great and incredible God, so awesome, so magnificent, yet notice out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, he says, God, you managed to ordain strength. The idea is strength of your character in order to disprove your, disprove your enemies and silence your enemies and your critics. God, he's saying, God, you're so strong, so awesome, so incredible, but yet despite that, you condescend in such a way that even little babes, small children, with the most childlike thinking can understand the reality of God in just innocence and simplicity and faith and recognize how awesome God is in such a way that they can be a powerful testimony to disprove the greatest thinkers who are atheists and agnostics and have their PhDs and want to debate all these things. And he says, God, all you need is a little child and the power of the testimony of a little child that can understand who you are, that you're real and you're great and you're strong. Look, for any of you who are here, Second service this past Sunday morning as we had some of the kids from our children's ministry come in and, and sing. It was such a joy for me to get to stand from the front. And though I, I love your children, mine are older now, though I love the children and to see what they're doing, it was awesome for me to watch the faces of everybody in the sanctuary. And not even just the parents. Those who weren't even parents of those kids. And everybody was smiling and glowing, and those little kids were just singing about their love for Jesus, and you know, and with passion and praise. And those kids, the praise from those kids was bringing a strong testimony for God's reality in this room, 
and they were four-year-olds and five-year-olds and seven-year-olds. In some ways, it's almost like they're not educated and smart enough to deny God yet because they just know in simple, childlike understanding God is real, God is good, God's existence is, is, and it's something that's very real to them. What a wonderful thing that God can be so mighty, but yet he condescends to work in the lives of even the smallest of children. You know, this is actually the very statement. If you remember Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus was coming uh, you know, through Jerusalem, and it tells us that he'd been doing all types of wonderful things among the people, miracles and helping people and ministering to people. And it literally says the Pharisees and the religious leaders in that day in Israel, when they saw the wonderful works of Jesus of Nazareth, what our Lord was doing, it says they were indignant. They were angry. And it says the thing that really angered them was that all the children, as Jesus was coming through town, were saying what? Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Again, the children understood that from the family line of King David that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that a Messiah was coming and that Jesus fit that in the lineage and fulfilled the prophecies, over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, perfectly fulfilled. And the children were were recognizing, the Spirit of the Lord was testifying to little kids. This is the Messiah. Hosanna, save now, son of David, save now. And the religious leaders, with all their degrees, We're angry. How dare those kids say, don't they know we're theologians? Don't they see our robes? And Jesus said what? Jesus said, have you not read? And then he quoted Psalm 8. Have you not read your Old Testament that out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise towards God? And Jesus saying that was in a sense indicating that he was God as well because he was referring to the praise they were giving towards him. And so Jesus quotes these very verses here that we have from Psalm 8 and how it's used to silence the enemies of God, the testimony of even a young child because of that simplicity. Sometimes we, sadly, as we age, we become too smart and we lose childlike faith that God wants us to have to just believe who he is in sincerity from our heart. David says, verse three, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. No doubt, again, David, imagine laying out in the fields. There's no smog and pollution. There's no lights from the nearby. He's just out in the fields, in the dark, in the desert areas, in the wilderness of Israel. And he's looking up and he's seeing the the stars and the solar system and the galaxies. And he's just thinking, going, wow, wow. When I consider, he says, Lord, the heavens. And again, in the Bible, the word heavens is used in three different ways. You have the atmospheric heavens, then you have the stellar heavens, and then you have the eternal heavens, the place of God's dwelling. So whatever David's referring to, no doubt as he's looking up, he says, Lord, this is all the work of, look what he says, your fingers, your fingers, God. These massive, powerful stars and these, Lord, just by your finger, you, I'll put one there and one there and then a few billion all there. And, then, and, and he says, Lord, but it, all it took was your finger to fling these things into existence. And he says, when I consider these things, the moon, the stars, which you've ordained. Again, the idea is he's thinking about the, the greatness of God. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? Again, David is contemplating just creation and how it testifies of God's power and the things that God is able to do. I mean, for example, as David's even looking up at the stars and, you know, the the solar system and these kind of things, he's considering all these things. You know, if you take into consideration, for example, even our own sun, right? Our sun, which is a very, very small star, and I don't want to do a whole astronomy lesson. You're free to do that on your own. And I encourage you, you know, there are some really very, very interesting, even YouTube videos that I've seen of late. My son-in-law showed me one that show Earth, and then it starts to show the sun and all these other stars and planets in relation to the size of Earth. It blows your mind when you realize how minuscule what we think is big, and then you realize God created all these things by his fingers. It's a pretty strong God. Our sun, which is a very small star in relativity to other stars, we are told that you can fit over 1.2 million of planet Earth inside of our sun. So you think the Earth's a pretty big place. In comparison to me, the globe's pretty big, right? 
You take our globe, our ball of dirt that we live on, you can fit over 1.2 million of our Earths inside of our sun, and our sun is a very small star in comparison to multitudes and multitudes of other stars that exist. You know, when you begin to contemplate the greatness, the magnitude of how big and how awesome God is, that's why David says, and what is man? Man, that you're mindful of him? I mean, here's this powerful, incredible God, and then these things that God's created, and then this star, which is a relatively small star, that you can fit 1.2 million specks of dust that we call earth this big globe and then what am i what are you as one person this tiny 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 little dot of dust on this big what we think big anyway ball of dirt and david's saying what is man that you're mindful of him that you actually think about us god and this just amazed david thinking about this reality How, you know, God's so great, but yet so loving and kind that he condescends and he actually does think about us. In fact, Psalm 139 even tells us that God's thoughts towards us are more than all of the grains of sand that exist on the planet. You know, we live by a beach. Go to the beach and just pick up a handful of sand and try and just count those grains of sand in your hand. And it says God's thoughts towards us are more than the sands, the grains of the sands on the shores that's incredible that god's and listen and here's the better thing jeremiah tells us i'm reading jeremiah right now in my morning devotional time jeremiah tells us what that god says my thoughts towards you are not of harm but of or of evil but to give you in a future hope so all those thoughts god has towards you they're all good thoughts that should make you feel really encouraged you are on god's mind all the time and his thoughts about you are really good for a good future, for a wonderful, hopeful experience in your days ahead. That is the amazing magnitude of our God, but yet the love and the humility that God would come and and condescend to think upon us. He says, "And, and the son of man that you would visit him for you've made him a little lower than the angels. The idea is in creation, we're a little lower than the angels. Why? Because we currently don't have an immortal existence like the angelic beings do. In our humanity, in our flesh right now, we're made a little lower than the angels. But he says, yet you've crowned him, man, with glory and honor. Well, what does that mean? Well, because the reality is we've been made a little lower than the angels with earthly bodies that are fleshly for this earthly existence. But yet, who's been created in the image of God? Not angels. We have been. God has crowned us with that glory and with that honor, that we are the image bearers of God as people that he has created on this earth. That he's bestowed that honor upon us. Verse six says, you've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of of the sea. So he speaks of how man has been crowned as well with glory and honor, not only being made in the image of God, but we have been given this stewardship. We see it from the Garden of Eden to rule over the earth and have dominion over it. That was the original plan of God, that human beings would have dominion over the earth, over God's creation, that we would be stewards over that. Now, sadly, we see in the book of Genesis in chapter three, we forfeited that in essence, over to the devil by choosing to submit when Adam and Eve disobeyed God to the will of the devil rather than to the will of God. And in a sense, that was something that mankind forfeited. But God's heart was that we would function in this way where God would bless us with this honor of being his image bearers and that we would have dominion over this earthly creation as his stewards to live in relationship with him as his sons and daughters. But sin, of course, has interrupted that, and the devil has defiled that. But thankfully, God and his love didn't leave us in that way. God made a way to provide salvation for us. And how did God do that? Well, think of even what David is saying here. And let me just say, for homework for you, I encourage you, read Hebrews chapter 2, because the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 quotes these verses here and relates them directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
saying that these things were not just true of humanity generally, but Psalm 8 actually spoke prophetically of the greatest man, the son of man, the God man, Jesus Christ, who would come and would take a body of flesh and God became man, took upon himself a second nature and was made a little lower than even the angelic beings to live as a human being among us, to be the perfect mediator between God and humanity to provide salvation for us. And the psalmist uses these very verses to say that these things actually portray what our Lord actually did, being so great, but yet condescending in humility to come and live among us. Look again what he says in verse 4 there. He says, what's man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Well, that's interesting. When did God visit mankind? In Jesus, right? Because the Bible tells us that the virgin shall conceive in her womb, Isaiah 7, and give birth to a child, to a male child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us that God came to be with us, that God might save us and redeem us. And this is the gloriousness of what an awesome, incredible God being so great. David looking and just amazed, but then realizing, oh my goodness, but yet you're mindful of each person. You visit us. You you break into our own lives. That's why no doubt David ended the Psalm, verse 9, coming back to where he started. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. In other words, David's just standing in awe and wonder of God. And you know what, folks? Truly, if we really contemplate the realities of God and who we are as insignificant, finite, tiny, tiny, little, weak human beings in comparison to the greatness of who God is, it should be enough to blow your mind to the end of 2021. Really should. And to make you want to worship like never, ever before. Why don't we end there? Let's 